bring points for our study that uh, I think help give a more confident sense of direction and uh, placement with where we are. So in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, uh, every once in a while in these uh, epistles written to churches or Christians, there might be something that's said that gives you some sense of overall theme. Um, so First Peter is kind of like that. In First Peter 5, verse 12, at the end, he says that he has been exhorting, testifying, this is the true grace of God. You know, so from that, you can kind of look back and reread it and think, oh, Peter was actually trying to define true grace in everything that he was writing. Uh, John is the same way, his gospel. He ends the gospel saying that every sign that's been written, despite all the other things that Jesus did, were written specifically so that you could believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life in his name. So same, same thing. You've got this, this statement that gives you an anchoring point to know that there's, there's a greater context of purpose that the writer intended Hebrews 13, verse 22 says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Um, So the reason why that verse is important is the writer is clarifying that this is a word of exhortation. An exhortation is usually something that's said in a strong way to stir up action. Uh, It can also mean to, like, call alongside And one of the things in Hebrews is the reader is being called alongside Jesus. And eventually, as the letter progresses uh, into chapter 10 and 11, we're going to be not only called alongside Jesus, but all those of all time who have been striving to serve Jesus by faith as well. So we're being urged to action by being called to the side of Jesus and all those who ever served him and served him by faith. Um, Another thing about an exhortation with a strong language, the Hebrew letter has these these peaks of um, these peaks of language that are really intense. Uh, we're going to be covering a shorter section, uh, chapter four, fourteen through five, ten, and it's it's right before we get to one of these peaks of intensity where the Hebrew author is going to speak very strongly, very frankly, uh, with the audience to consider their condition in light of everything that he's laid out. Before we get there, uh, chapter ten. I think it's very important to keep in mind the circumstance the audience was also in at the time of this writing. It really gives purpose uh, to the things that the Hebrew writer brings up and I think helps amplify the power of some of the points that are made. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. He urges them, he says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle, through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you, were, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So we're going to see that in the next section after chapter 5, verse 10. Um, that he's very frank with the audience that there's things that are going on that seem to indicate that they're drifting back from their confession, uh, almost like they're withdrawing from the Lord because of their sufferings, and so they have need of endurance. So the letter is meant to equip the audience to have the endurance to obey God and see Jesus in newer and greater, more magnificent ways through their suffering. Um, One of the principles that I'd like to keep touching on 
is that the Hebrew writer, I think, kind of sets an example for us to follow of really what we need oftentimes when we're suffering. As much as we need just encouragement and kind words, the Hebrew writer is really trying to urge them to draw close to Jesus, to see Jesus, to really dig deep, to like engage their minds, to think about what they've received from the Lord, to think about how Jesus has suffered for them, to think about the Old Testament scriptures and the glory of what's been inherited. And so there's all these comparisons that are made throughout Hebrews to help the reader to understand the superiority of everything that we have. So chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus is going to be pictured as a superior priest in comparison to the priests who served under the Old Covenant. And that's going to be something that will be um, continued to be compared. Reason why um, that is important. Um, did any of you hear about this guy who broke the two-hour mark in the marathon recently? I think most people probably did it. Like, became pretty sensational. So, like, nobody, at least in recorded history, uh, has ever broke two hours running a marathon. And just to put that into perspective, that's four minutes and 30 seconds per mile, every mile. For I think it's like, buddy, a marathon is 23 miles, right? 26, 26 miles. So for 26 miles, four minutes and 30 seconds, which is an unreal pace. And in order to do that, like he had to have people who were keeping pace with him in a rotation. He had to have like a vehicle driving in front of him, like flagging on the ground, you know, the, the, the exact pace they need to be running. It had to be at an exactly even surface for 26 miles. So there are all these special things, but the point is he did something that was never done before. And the reason we, we know why that's so impressive and why that becomes so sensational is because it is superior comparatively than anything anyone else had ever done. And so it becomes more magnificent knowing that people have made attempts, people you know, have been running marathons for as long as we know, but nobody has ever achieved this. So the Hebrew writer in making comparisons is trying to bring out very vividly the great magnificence of everything that Jesus came to the world to become for us and for the sake of our salvation. He started in chapter 1 comparing him to angels. Jesus obviously is greater than angels, but angels have obviously done great things. And if Jesus is far more great than even angels, then he's greater beyond any comparison in terms of uh, his power, his sovereignty, his authority. And chapter 2, he began the context of him being a superior priest as well. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 17, and this will lead us into our, our section. Chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Look at chapter 4, verse 14, where we'll be starting. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest taken from a man is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. Uh, chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7, he's going to pick back up on Jesus' priesthood after an interlude of exhortation. So this is obviously something very important that the Hebrew writer sees as a central point that is meant to encourage the audience to find endurance through suffering. 
And I think the big section, the big theme for this section is understanding Jesus' sympathetic nature, the sympathizing nature of his priesthood. Um, So we're going to start with verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think an important question, um, getting into the text, what kind of people do you go to for help? Um, And really like help of any kind, what kind of person would you go to for help? Um, And I've listed some things, you may be able to think of more things, but I think first you'd want to seek help from somebody who has the ability to actually do something, right? So if you're having a financial problem or a problem at work, a problem in family, you know, whatever it is, you're, you're generally going to look for somebody to help you who actually has ability, somebody you have confidence in who has ability to help, um, somebody who actually cares, um, somebody you're confident has compassion about whatever problem you're having, somebody you're confident will actually take action, maybe somebody who's been through your same suffering in the past and has come through that suffering in some way that's clearly encouraged you or just made them maybe a better person through it. Um, But in some way, you've seen them succeed through the suffering that you're now going through. Um, Somebody who's available. Um, Somebody can have the ability. Somebody can have compassion. But if they're just not available, then they're really not reachable, right? So availability is important. Um, Somebody who's within reach. So there might be somebody who can help you, but they're actually too far away or you're just, they're just out of the realm of your capacity to even contact them, right? So it might be somebody you knew in the past, but now there's just not the same connection, so you can't get help from them, right? So there needs to be somebody who's within reach. And I think somebody who's willing to listen and somebody who's also willing to make sacrifices in order to give you help. It's a long list, but the thing is, in these few verses, Jesus meets every single qualification on that list. Jesus is very evidently able to help us. He's very evidently a man of compassion. He's uh, proven his capacity to care about our suffering and share in our suffering. He's been through the same suffering that we've been through. If you look at verse 15, it says he's been tempted in everything that we've been tempted in yet without sin. So not only has he been through suffering, he's come out of our same suffering He's available. So verse 16, the problem isn't his availability. The problem is whether or not we're willing to actually approach him. Uh, He's within reach. So even though he's passed through the heavens in verse 14, we can still on earth by faith draw near with confidence to his throne of grace. So not only is he within reach, but we're also confident that he'll listen, that he'll listen to our prayers, he'll listen to our cries, and that he's clearly willing to make every sacrifice to provide for our needs because of the sacrifice of himself. And we'll see that more in the, in the next section. So literally everything that makes somebody approachable, that makes somebody a source of help in time of need, Jesus meets all of those things that provide for those needs. But even there are, I'm sure, plenty of things that we can come up with that exceed even the little list that I came up with, right? So again, remember that the audience is in the midst of suffering 
And the writer isn't trying to, ha- trying to get them to think outside of their suffering, but to th- help them to think about Christ and how he suffered to give them confidence to know that he can give them the help they need to endure through their suffering. And so Jesus, the urge is to get us to connect with Jesus and his purpose in our suffering. And why this is important, uh, generally, my answer to temptation and suffering is withdrawal. Um, generally, it's not just withdrawal, but it's to close my heart. Um, so I may close myself off. I may fear uh, judgment. I may fear judgment from God. I may fear judgment from men, which really in verse 16 comes from a lack of faith that God is willing to provide mercy and grace. Um, and I think about why those two things would be so important. Have you ever gone to somebody for help specifically because you needed mercy, but they treated you harshly or impatiently. And if if you have been treated that way, how did that make you feel uh, in relation to them, their help, right? Um, Oftentimes that actually makes things worse and makes the suffering you're going through more intense because you weren't able to get the help that you were seeking from somebody who you thought um, was going to give it. And God's not that way. So in verse 16, the guarantee is God will always show us the mercy that we need. And mercy is most needed specifically when we're aware of our weaknesses and our sin. Um, Obviously, with mercy, the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is not receiving what we deserve, whereas grace is more uh, receiving something that we do not deserve. So God is both willing through Christ to withhold the impatience, the judgment, the punishment that we may deserve. He's willing to show us grace and patience, but he's also willing to forgive and give uh, what we don't deserve as well, right? So we have every reason to approach God's throne with confidence, uh, especially in suffering. Last thing about this section in 14 through 16 is endurance and holding fast to our confession in verse 14. Endurance is pictured in verse 16 as drawing closer and drawing nearer to the throne, right? So endurance is not just making it by or just kind of gliding through your suffering. Endurance is specifically with deliberation, resolving to draw close to God in the midst of my suffering, right? So endurance kind of takes a different, a different pictured form um, in, these, in these verses. So with Jesus having the capacity to help, the writer follows that up with how Jesus both understands our need, but also how he's qualified to meet those needs in an encouraging way. So let's read verses 1 through 10. Uh, by the way, this is only going to be two points. So this, this is a shorter section. So this is the last section we're going to look at. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorance and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. Uh, And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Just pause there for just a second. So verses 1 through 10 uh, has something that's called a chiasm. Chiasm is just like, when there's a format that is parallel, like a, a way of writing where you're, you're making parallel points in a sequence. So like point A 
is parallel to point A, point B is then parallel to point B, and point C is parallel to point C. And I guess just to say that more clearly with the text, there are three qualifications here for the Levitical priests. And the three qualifications is one, offer sacrifices. And that's going to be said of Jesus in verses 9 and 10 as the final qualification for his priesthood, whereas it's the first qualification mentioned here. The second qualification in verse 2 is dealing gently with the ignorant and misguided because of being beset with weaknesses as well. Uh, And so he's able to show sympathy. So the second qualification is to be sympathetic. Uh, That's going to be the second middle qualification as well for Jesus. The third qualification in verse 4 is he needs to be appointed by God uh, to also um, make sacrifices. Uh, So the first qualification that Jesus is going to have in verse 5 and 6 is that he's called by God and appointed by God. So the Levites offer sacrifices, be sympathetic because of being beset with weaknesses, and being appointed by God, called by God, not by men. And then with Jesus in the opposite parallel, Jesus is appointed by God, he's sympathetic, he makes sacrifice uh, to inherit the priesthood. So verses 5 through 10, we're going to see these same qualifications paralleled now with Jesus in greater ways. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also, he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Uh, Your translation may say godly fear or reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So an ideal priest uh, was supposed to be somebody who was serving the people to, in a sense, bring God to the people, to make known God's nature, God's purpose, It's kind of like the lesson last week. The priest's task was ultimately to identify God to the people, almost like a living and walking manifestation of God's law embodied in a person serving. And what the priest was supposed to do in contrast to that was also teach the people how then they were to identify with God through the sacrificial system, by his mercy and by his grace, right? And so Jesus fulfills all of these things in obviously a much superior way. And so Jesus is able to bring God to the people in a greater way. And he's able to bring us to God in a more perfect way as well, which he's going to get back to in in chapter 7. First thing I want to deal with is verse 4, and uh, 4 through through 6. This idea that the priests were called by God and appointed, and Jesus in parallel also did not glorify himself so as to just make himself a high priest, but he inherited an appointed order as called by God. The reason why uh, that is important to note for one just side reason, God takes roles very seriously, right? So there's roles for men, there's roles for women, uh, there's also roles within the church, there's elders, there's deacons, right? 
And with all of those roles, there's going to be a sense of self-denial and self-crucifixion in order to conform ourselves into those roles. Jesus, in the same way, we're going to read, had to conform himself into the defined role that God had set for him. And the way that he did that was through self-denial and suffering, just like us, right? I think another reason why that's important with those roles, when somebody moved outside of the boundary of these roles in the past, they were punished for it. So do you remember Eli in 1 Samuel? He was the high priest who was the priest in the days when Samuel was really born and was raised. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And if you remember the quality of the service they were offering to the people, they were harsh, they were greedy, and they were, honestly, they were very despicable. And because of how despicably they were treating that role, God judged them and God specifically told Eli that he was going to kill both of his sons in battle. Uh, because of the way they were dishonoring those roles. You have Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons. When the law was first being inaugurated by the appointment of the priesthood and their sanctification, God sent fire from out of his presence when they offered to him fire that was strange and not commanded, right? So God takes roles very seriously. And it's important that when God defines a role, that we humble ourselves to conform into that role for his purpose. So verses 7 through 10 is going to deal with the fact that Jesus had to also humble himself to fit that role. Last thing about that that I think is is meant to be very encouraging and important. What is the greatest evidence that somebody loves you? The greatest evidence. When I think about this, I think scripturally and even even outside of scripture, just the sense of relationships... The greatest thing a somebody can do to show their love is sacrifice. The more somebody is willing to sacrifice for you, the more it shows they love you. Especially things that are sacrificed that that do not fit things that they um, were already willing to give up or things that really didn't matter to them. In chapter 1, you remember at the beginning of chapter 1, it lists these glorious qualities that Jesus has always had that he returned back into when he ascended. It mentions in verse 2 that Jesus is the heir of all things. He made the world. Verse 3 is the radiance of God's glory. He upholds everything by his power. He returned to heaven to sit down at the right hand of God. He's better than angels, has always been better than angels. And the idea is there are things that Jesus was willing to sacrifice things that he had a right to hold on to, and he willingly forfeited and sacrificed the privilege of all of those things in order to inherit this order. The idea is in order for Jesus to specifically get into the order of Melchizedek, he had to be willing of his own will to sacrifice everything, everything that was dear to him, in order to show us that not only is he able to help, but he understands our need to help. Second thing is Jesus' sympathy. Uh, Jesus is gentle in verse 7, uh, 7 and 8, because the conformity to this call, this role, and the sacrifice required in that conformity put Jesus in a position where he was more in tune with the weakness of his condition than anyone else who's ever lived. And look at Matthew chapter 12 briefly. Matthew chapter 12. Um, And I think this helps us understand the idea that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered because there's a kind of obedience 
that is only within understanding weakness and the weakness of others and the need to handle that weakness with care, consideration, and gentleness. Matthew chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 18, says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Especially verse 20. Uh, This is one of my favorite Old Testament prophecies that looks forward or describes Jesus. It is a batter reed not breaking off is like, you know, a reed in the water kind of bent over and it's bruised and it's about to just kind of snap off its limb. Uh, And Jesus, the picture is that he's handling it with such care that he's tenderly healing it without making the damage any worse and he's able to bring it back to health. A smoldering wick is, I think, a much more easier image you just imagine like a candle and like all that's left is like a very dim, dim, smoldering little spark on the wick. And you imagine just the slightest breath will just put it out. But again, the picture is not just that he preserves it, it's that Jesus is able to bring the flame back and bring it back into its proper position without damaging it any worse. And so Jesus had a character of approachability and gentleness because he himself was most in tune with the weakness of the human condition. And the reason why that's important beyond Jesus uh, for us, I think that gives light to just the nature of the priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 uh, teaches that we are identified as spiritual priests serving God to proclaim his excellencies So the question is, are we in tune with our weaknesses? Like, are we serving God in a way where we're able to serve one another through that same means of understanding? Uh, Turn back to Luke chapter 6. And if you're you're in Matthew, you're turning forward. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 39. Luke chapter 6, 39 through 44. Uh, And he also spoke a parable to them, a blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Uh, Verse 41. Just kind of think about this in connection with what was just said in verse 40, the idea of a pupil being made like his teacher. It says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush." I think the way that this context weaves together is if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, we become more and more like him in his nature as we develop and grow. And one of the evidences of growth in that way and being more like our teacher in verse 42 and 40, uh, well, 41 and 42, is having, like Jesus, a great sense of our own weakness, right? So the idea is I'm able to see within my heart and I'm able to see the depth of my weakness and my need for mercy most clearly first 
before I handle the weaknesses of others to give them mercy. Uh, Go back to Hebrews chapter 5. So in in 7 through 10, uh, when it talks about Jesus offering up these loud prayers with loud crying and tears, what scene comes into your mind? Um, like, can you think about any written event in Jesus' life that really fits the mold of what's being described here? Uh, for me, I think that's Gethsemane. Uh, that's what immediately comes to my mind when I think about this kind of approach to God in Jesus' life. Um, I don't think that, that means that this only happened in Gethsemane, but I do think that's obviously when we see it most vividly when we're reading uh, through the ministry of Jesus. Um, and I think that's meant to teach us a couple of things. One, Jesus' love for God was not based on circumstance or convenience. When he's talking about Jesus being heard because of his godly fear, uh, I think what that's meant to convey is that Jesus being a son of God, Jesus' relationship with God, was ultimately not any different than ours, right? That although he was a son and that with being a son, there would be certain privileges, he had to approach God with the same humility and the same reverence same reverence that puts him in an equalized position in a sense with us and how we approach God. So he served God not on the basis of right or circumstance or convenience, but on the basis of God's worthiness to be served simply because of his character and promises, right? And he had to suffer the conformity of his role in order to do that. Second thing is what this teaches about obedience and when obedience is most valuable. Um, When I was younger, um, oftentimes I wouldn't do things that I read in scripture because I didn't feel like emotionally compelled. And so I'd kind of tell myself, it's not, well, it's not really valuable then. Like God's not going to be pleased if I like read the Bible right now or go to him in prayer because I don't really feel emotionally driven to do it, so it's not really meaningful, right? I just want you to think about this. Those of you who have kids, if you instruct children to always just do what they already want to do, is their obedience valuable? So like if you tell your child, like, okay, in the morning we're going to start with cheesecake and I need you to eat that cheesecake, then we're going to go shopping for toys and new video games, so I really need you to come with me, we're going to come home, and then we're going to have candy. So it's like you're, you're setting up this schedule where there's really like as little opportunity for obedience as possible because you're simply telling them to do things they already want to do, right? But the discipline of obedience is most valuable when it's not done because I already feel compelled, but because of my understanding of the role of the one who's giving me command, right? And so just as we need to obey God by understanding who he is, by being convinced of his love, his promise, the direction that our obedience leads to in his promises, Jesus did the same way and actually suffered in greater ways because of the self-control required to not call on the rights and privileges inherent within him being a son. So in verse, uh, in verse 8, he learned obedience, just like we learn obedience, through the things that he was suffering. And again, for the audience, this is meant to put their suffering in a greater, clearer, more encouraging light. Um, And I think there's one more layer with this that's important. In the Bible, there may be a lot of things that I already agree with, 
Um, there may be a lot of things that maybe even before repenting and you know, discovering the truth, there may be things that I was already doing. Uh, you know, for not drinking alcohol or, you know, being sober-minded. Maybe, you know, I already wasn't using any addictive substances in my past. Uh, maybe I don't really have a problem with bitterness. You know, there's not really been a problem in my past of harboring ill feelings against people. Maybe I've already taken a lot of initiative to make sure my relationships are, are reconciled with people. But there's always going to be a point in God's word, and it might seem small comparatively, but there's always going to be a point where God calls me to do something that does not already agree with the life that I've been living. And even the call for excellence in the qualities that I may have already been applying will challenge me to deny myself in order to excel in those things in ways I never have before. And the question is, what do I do then? And Jesus as our model, again, verses 8 and 9 especially, Jesus, as our model, shows us that there is grace and mercy and encouragement and glory in choosing the discipline of responding to that struggle in faith rather than withdrawing from God and not drawing near at those times. So Jesus continued to obey God and focus and compose himself in obedience and an obedient mentality even when he was in the midst of unfathomable pressures and suffering. It eliminates the excuse of thinking that my circumstances dismiss me from being obedient to God or that my circumstances give me a disadvantage where God will understand my disobedience, right? It's not that God is not compassionate and won't show us mercy. It's that Jesus shows us that we can draw near to God. He's with us he will deliver us. There's greater grace and greater joy in continuing to surrender. Um, so the last thing about Jesus uh, in verse 9 and 10, we'll talk more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. So you know, I'm going to save uh, dealing too much with that in Psalm 110 until we get to uh, chapter 7. But Jesus sacrificing himself, providing what we need ultimately to abide in God's presence um, Jesus helps us to understand that we can all be obedient to God in any circumstance that we're in, right? That I can please God even if my circumstances might differ from yours in environment, but the underlying principle of obedience by Jesus' sacrifice unifies and equalizes all of God's people together. That there's never a point where I'm outside of the boundary of the sufferings of Christ to continue to connect with him, to have godly fear and a good understanding of God's promises, his mercy, and his grace being available if I'll simply respond and continue to draw near. And so Jesus understands our need for help, and he alone is fully and adequately equipped to respond to my needs in a way to continue to draw me closer to God. So that's where we're going to end our uh, study for this, this afternoon. Um, and we'll pick up on verse 11 uh, through the end of chapter 6, the next time we go through the Hebrew letter. Um, but if there's anything that needs to be made known at this time, um, the invitation is obviously that with what we've studied, God is able to bring us the help that we need in our suffering. And that obviously Jesus is our ultimate great high priest, but that we are called to share in his nature, to sympathize like him, 
And as we give each other opportunity to share in mutual suffering or to share in the mercy that God extends or the graciousness that he gives us liberally, it opens our eyes to have a greater persuasion of the glory of who God is to us in hidden ways as we in seen ways embody those things toward each other. So if there's anything that can be made known or anything that we can help each other with, please make it known when we stand and sing our invitation song.